0: Um, So the plan is I'm going to talk to you guys for a little bit, uh, go through some ideas, and um, then at the end of it, before we head out of here, if you've got any um, questions or thoughts, uh, we'll we'll have time for those. If not, you can grab some more donuts and coffee and be on your way and not sleep. Mm -hmm. Sound good, Luke? You ready? All All right. So, let's start in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to show you guys the verses on the side so you don't have to flip around. Um, In Matthew, there's this weird, dark story in chapter 27. Those are my favorite kind. So, we're going to start there. In the story, there's a guy called Judas Iscariot. You've heard of him. And uh, he'd been an apprentice of Jesus, um, a close personal friend. Of Jesus for years now following him around every single day spending time with him But in the story you guys know he agrees to sell Jesus out to the very people wanting to kill him To the tune of 30 pieces of silver Apparently scholars aren't exactly sure what kind of currency that would have been Uh, But based on the options it was probably somewhere to the tune of 200 bucks That Judas betrayed Jesus now I don't mind telling you guys in my world $200 is a lot of money uh, as is likely the case of some of you. But even so, I don't think I would sell a good friend to people that I knew were probably going to kill him for $200. Depends on the friend. The point is that Judas, he had these uh, other motivations and motivators. Both Luke and John's gospel say that at this point in the story, uh, Satan had entered him, so that was a bummer. And even after all that, he'd, after he'd been paid to do this heinous thing, he comes to his senses at least uh, to some of his senses and he regrets he specific. the scripture goes as far as to tell us that he regrets what he had done and we read in matthew 27 when judas who betrayed him saw that jesus was condemned he was seized with remorse so he regretted what he'd done he wished he hadn't done it and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders i've sinned he said I've betrayed innocent blood. So there's the confession. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas throws the money into the temple, and then the next sentence, he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money in the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as the burial place for foreigners, and that's why it has been called the field of blood. To this day, an actual, real historical location. So, here's why this story is weird. The money itself, meaning, you know, the inanimate coins aren't somehow energized with evil that we know of, that, that the story doesn't say that Satan entered the money, and yet no one wants anything to do with the money. Judas throws it, he tries to give it back, the chief priest won't take it back, he throws the money at him and they leave, or he leaves, and it's such a striking image, Rembrandt actually painted this thing. I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of Rembrandt paintings. They're really fascinating because they hide all these kind of symbolic details in them. Um, And this is one of my uh, favorites. It doesn't look so great on the screen right now, but look it up on your own time. There's actually, you can kind of scan over it and look for like, why is this detail? Why is that in there? The the image of the money scattered on the floor and there's kind of this aversion to the money itself. Um, So the chief priests, they have the coins at their feet um and the the guys who have conspired to kill an innocent person they don't even feel right about putting the money in the temple treasury Uh, and when the scene concludes the blood money has now become a field of blood so it wasn't the money it was where the money came from it was the story behind the money Uh, we often overlook the fact that everything we have has a story. Everything that you buy or wear or drink, all of it has a story. And the problem is that we're consumers. There's kind of no way around it. We've grown accustomed to uh, a painless accommodating shopping experience that presents us with an ever-widening buffet of products for consumption at a, a moment's notice. I know I have grown quite accustomed to this. And then if knowing the story behind the things you buy complicates the ease and satisfaction of the shopping experience, then we'd often prefer not to hear it at all. You know, think of that scene where um, Phoebe Buffet's mom gifts her a fur coat. And Phoebe, an avowed vegetarian, doesn't want to wear the fur coat. So I, can't, I have a perfectly normal jacket that no one suffered to make. And Chandler Bing, rest in peace, says uh, except for some Filipino kids who worked themselves blind for 10 cents an hour. Which is a really dark joke for friends. Uh, and Phoebe can't believe what she's uh, heard. So... The problem is that we're Christians, so if you follow Jesus, this guy, I don't know if you've realized this yet, he has something to say about everything you do, including, but certainly not limited to the things that you buy and the stories behind the things that you buy. So, again, here's the plan for the evening. Give me just a little bit, and we'll talk a a brief crash course I promise it's not as uh, you know, like as 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 a deep. Well, maybe it's not. You'll see. Um, we're going to talk about the Bible's idea of justice uh, and labor ethics, and then a broad overview of why our shopping can create a problem with them, and then a few thoughts about what we should do about all that. And if you guys, you know, have any questions at the end, we can have time for that. You guys, all right? You feeling sharp? You okay? Great. Um, so here's how you build a biblical theology of justice. We actually have a staggering amount of content to draw from. I'm just going to do a quick bird's eye view type of thing in the scriptures. The idea of justice as a noun, as a concept, is what our friend Dr. Gary Brashears describes as a community in which all relationships, God, others, self, and the rest of creation are well-ordered and flourishing as God designed them to be. That is Justice. And if you read the story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis on through Revelation, you see that God's paradigm of rightly ordered relationships is really different than the American one, because God's paradigm includes other countries and people, and it also includes values and prioritizes the so-called worthless person, meaning those who hold no uh, economic uh, value and those who have little to no social value, the bottom rungs, kind of the margins of society, the people that we don't know what to do with and would rather not deal with. Look at this from the Torah. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them... For the poor and the foreigner, I am Yahweh your God. So as far back as Israel's like earliest written guideline for becoming the people of God, we see Yahweh Himself commanding thoughtful active concern for the poor, for those on the other side of social and cultural and even geographic borders. And what's more, when God's people neglect these commands, God is the one who takes it personally. We read in Proverbs, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So God receives both the indignation and the honor. Or in Psalm 12, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says Yahweh, I will protect them from those who malign them. Or look at this from Zechariah. You didn't think we were going to read from Zechariah tonight, did you? The uh, the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint, and they would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. And if these categories for caring for the poor and the foreigner feel a bit broad, Yahweh actually personally connects them to what we might now describe as labor ethics. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 24. In it, Um, Moses is giving his, like, final speech to the people before he dies, and he summarizes uh, the collection of laws from the Torah, which includes this. Don't take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they're poor, they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. So the passage is commanding pay poor workers, that makes sense, pay them in a timely fashion. Why? Because they need it, they're counting on it. Sure, that makes sense, but there's something else to the whole thing. God is on their side. So you will be guilty of sin. God's concern for the poor and the oppressed and the foreigner permeates permeates the entire Bible in both the broad and the specific sense, and God's contempt for the unjust treatment of laborers continues on into the New Testament. Look at this Crazy thing from James, he writes, Now listen, you rich people, which already sounds great, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, and then this is why, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. you fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. Apparently James is like writing metal lyrics uh, for the Bible. So God is on the side of the so-called worthless person, the, the people that others treat with contempt or as not socially or economically viable. And to contribute to the exploitation of such a person— for God, anyway, is an egregious sin. It stirs the anger of God himself, and he rises up to defend those people. And The Old Testament actually closes with the book of Malachi. You didn't know we were going to read from Malachi, did you? And it includes these uh, haunting words, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So social justice is uh, all the rage at the moment. It's not exactly a tough sell in the Portland metro area or in the social media world. Um, Social justice is popular. Or, you know, virtue signaling on social media and then calling it social justice. And yet we are consumers. There's not an awful lot that we can do about that to exist in the world and to survive in it. You have to be some level of consumer or maintain some level of consumer producer relationships. We're the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. So as consumers we buy things. We buy food, uh, cosmetic products, technology, entertainment. But for the sake of time, um, so you guys won't be here all, all night, let's just zero in on something that we all have and we all need, which is clothes. Now I'll warn you it's going to sound pretty bleak for a bit here but hang in there we're going somewhere with all this it's not as bad well it's it's pretty bad but then it's going to there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel so we're consumers as consumers we purchase among other things clothes we all have them we all have them right now in the room now I'm taking this one example, uh, and let me show you how quickly and frustratingly complicated things get when you're trying to resolve the stuff in the scriptures with the reality of your life as a consumer. the clothes that we have that you're all wearing weren't just like burped out of a 3D printer or assembled by machines on a conveyor belt. It's actually a three-stage process. It starts with farming, which is like the growing cotton, the shearing of wool, all that kind of stuff. Then there's input production, which is the cotton gins and the knitting and the dyeing and all that, and then final stage production, which is the cutting and the sewing and the printing. And then it's on to the retailers and you buy it. Now then our buying creates three dimensions of, shall we say, complication, to put it lightly, in our discipleship to Jesus. The first is our call to do justice the second is in our call to care for God's creation. And then finally is in our call to live a life of simplicity as disciples of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to do an in-depth biblical theology of all three things, so the long and short of it is this. We've already seen disciples of Jesus are called to do a lifestyle of justice, demonstrates active concern for the poor and the marginalized, the abused, especially the foreigner, people in other countries that are expecting wages, all that kind of stuff. We are not to participate in systems of violence and oppression, especially when our participation furthers violence and oppression. Disciples of Jesus are mandated by God to care for creation, to steward the resources of the world that God made and to care for it well, to not exploit the environment. As disciples of Jesus, we're also commanded by our teacher and Lord to embrace a lifestyle of um, what I would describe as radical simplicity, which means that we reject excess and materialism and the accumulation of money and things so that we can embrace a lifestyle of generosity and contentment. Now, imagine you, as a disciple of Jesus, want to become a more thoughtful shopper. And you figure, well, if God feels really seriously about the oppression and mistreatment of laborers, and you don't want to shop in such a way as to make yourself complicit in such a thing. The problem is, every step in that three-stage process back there requires human labor and massive human abuse as well as human trafficking and slavery has been widely reported in every dimension of the industry in that threefold process. Now major companies and retailers require the efforts of thousands of people to get what you're wearing all the way from the cotton field in Uzbekistan or whatever Um, or the sheep, or the silkworm, to the textile, to the sewing machines, the shipping crates, and to the mall or the department store. Now, given the amount of manpower necessary in each stage of the production process in order to generate such a massive stockpile of clothes, major companies, by and large, have taken up the practice for years and years, decades now, to relegate these processes to what we once called the third world and then the developing world and now it's mostly referred to as the majority world in order to ramp up the production and save money in the process. Now, the fact that your clothes were made overseas, probably most of the clothes in the room, doesn't necessarily mean that they were made unethically as most of our clothes in uh, America were made in China and Indonesia and India and so on. The problem is that these companies don't simply have like an H&M factory in Bangladesh, you know, managed and staffed by H&M employees. And so instead, the companies, they source their production to cotton farmers and to mills and to factories. And then it falls on that company to maintain insight into the areas from which they source the materials and to uphold the integrity of the farms and the factories and more to the point to care for the people manufacturing their products it's something that they can do that is within their power to do so but by and large they do not and this is not you know josh's weird opinion uh i think this is well reported but you can read a tremendous amount about it um they do not which is bad news given the fact that we buy more clothes than ever before this this year Uh, Business Insider reported that 100 billion apparel items are created by the fashion industry annually. Uh, That's a high number. That's a, I mean, 1 billion is a high number, but 100 billion items, that's enough, apparently, according to this article, for every person on earth to get 14 new pieces of clothing each year. And it's more than double the amount of clothing produced in the year 2000. So in 23 years, the amount of clothes that we've produced has doubled. That's insane. Because of our whole like buy and return culture, the article argues, a lot of that clothing gets sent back to retailers despite what many people think. Most clothing that gets returned does not get restocked or repurposed or reused. Some of it does, most of it doesn't. Most of it ends up in the garbage. So every day, this is a quote, tens of millions of garments are tossed out to make way for new ones and every year 101 million tons of clothing end up in landfills. So To meet that demand, the expectation that we have for the availability of new and fast fashion, these brands just ramp up the production. The fast fashion brand Zara, for example, produces, get this, 450 million garments with 20,000 new styles every year, which remain in fashion, of course, for a limited amount of time until they're replaced by the new styles and the new lines the following year, and like I said, takes people to farm these materials and make all those clothes. So fashion is one of the most labor-intensive industries in the whole world. Out of the global workforce, which is apparently about 3.4 billion people, approximately 430 million people work in fashion, in the clothing and the textile production and all those different rungs of the production process. Um, The Global Slavery Index reported this year in 2023 that nearly two-thirds... Of all the people living in modern slavery work in supply chains of major clothing brands, most of the people that are still enslaved in the world today are working for fashion brands to make the clothes that we wear. And of that number, women represent the overwhelming majority of those slaves. This means that there's something of a conflict of interest in our recent and and entirely justifiable outcry to eradicate the oppression of women when it does not also consider one of the primary ways women are being oppressed in the world today. Now, of course, you don't have to have everything figured out before you take a stand against what's just objectively evil, but it's a bit of a bummer to see people with a platform calling for the ethical treatment of women when they're also decked out in fast fashion brands and thus, you know, kind of knowingly or unknowingly participating in the abuse of women around the world. And since these issues of slavery and abuse so thoroughly permeate the entire industry, it's not as easy to sort out. We can't simply ask, okay, well, is this company good or bad? Because it all comes from the same collection of places. The poorest people on the planet are the cheapest to employ for the sake of fast fashion. So at best, they're worked to the bone for grossly inadequate wages, This so it's really unfair, and at worst, they're actually being trafficked into slavery and abused. Many of those workers are children. The International Labor Organization estimated in 2021 that 160 million kids are engaged in labor defined by the UN as, and I quote, work for which the child is either too young, too young, work done below the required minimum age, Or work which, because of its detrimental nature or conditions, is altogether considered unacceptable for children and is prohibited. Many of these children work within the fashion industry. A recent report by the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations and the India Committee of the Netherlands revealed that the common practice of factories is to recruit young girls, under the pretense of escaping poverty or hope for food and education, come work for the factory, you'll get a better life. The same report said, in reality, they are working under appalling conditions that amount to modern-day slavery and the worst forms of child labor. All in the name of fast, inexpensive fashion collections cranked out by the, I guess, tens of thousands every year, most of which end up in a landfill afterward. And since... We're getting rid of clothes almost as fast as we're buying them. The United Nations Environment Program claims that, and here's some great stats for you, the equivalent of one garbage truck full of clothes is burned or dumped in a landfill every second. The United Nations Economic Commissions for Europe and the World Resources Institute says that up to 85% of textiles go into landfills each year. That's enough, apparently, to fill the Sydney Harbor annually. And, of course, we have to wash all these new clothes as long as we do keep them, which releases 500,000 tons of microfibers into the ocean each year, the equivalent of 50 billion plastic bottles. Jeez, Greenpeace says that many of those fibers are polyester, which is a plastic found in, like, 60% of garments. Producing polyester in the first place releases two to three times more carbon emissions than cotton, and polyester doesn't break down in the ocean, it just stays there. The fashion industry makes up 10% of global carbon dioxide output, more than international flights and shipping combined, and it's the second largest consumer of water worldwide. It takes 700, I didn't know this, it takes 700 gallons of water to produce one cotton shirt, and it takes 2,000 gallons of water to produce a pair of jeans. That's more than enough for one person to drink 8 cups per day for 10 years. And the fashion industry doesn't just consume water, it's responsible, apparently, for 20% of all industrial water pollution around the world. So, to summarize, I realize it's a lot of data. It's all bad. All very bad things. This... Um, the more that uh, public awareness increases around issues of slavery and pollution in the industry, fashion brands are sort of scrambling to do damage control. Uh, uh, not for the, I'm, you know, I'm pretty cynical about this, but I'm assuming for their bottom line. So the first time I ever gave a lecture on these issues was uh, 10 years ago now or something like that. And one of the issues that was making headlines at the time was uh, widespread crimes against humanity in the cotton fields of Uzbekistan, which led to public outcry for boycotts. And eventually, it sort of worked. It became this really public, transparent thing, and everyone was putting a lot of pressure on these really well-known fashion brands to boycott Uzbek cotton. Now, of course, boycotting the cotton doesn't mean that any company overhauled their entire practice. It just meant that they responded to public pressure in one specific area, uh, but they did. Some companies, on the other hand, such as uh, Bed Bath & Beyond and Forever 21, refused to do even that. They said, we don't care. In past years, having any insight into these issues honestly felt almost impossible. Each company's vested interest in preserving its own finest financial interest and reputation made it feel like you couldn't find out anything about anyone. But given the kind of ever-increasing wealth of information that we now have, through access to the internet, coupled with the growing awareness of these issues, and folks who are willing to call iffy practices into question companies are becoming less and less capable of pulling kind of the proverbial wool over our eyes. In the last few years, reports published by uh, an organization called the Baptist World Aid and the Responsible Sourcing Network assessed um, the policy, public disclosure, uh, traceability and transparency, and ethical labor of dozens of major brands um, and gave them a a grade, A, B, C, D, or F. Um, Here are a handful of the companies that got failing grades. You ready for this? Buckle up. Aeropostale, Carter, Skechers, Express Through the Loom, Lacoste, Quicksilver, Walmart, Shocker, Abercrombie, American Eagle, Arcteryx, Gildan, Nike, uh, Nordstrom, Macy's, Jamboree, Costco, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sears, Forever 21, and Urban Outfitters, I found this hilarious, got a big, fat zero on everything in all departments. Uh, and this was just to name a few. I just picked the ones that I thought most of us would recognize quickly. Now, thing is... If you go home tonight and you Google some of these companies and you think to yourself, Sears, how could you? You know, and you get online, does Sears really blah, blah, blah? You'll probably get led to their website. And you'll find, right? I haven't actually Googled Sears, but y- you will find on their website, I bet even Sears, um, entire pages dedicated to all kinds of flowery prose about their sustainability and their ethical practices. These are called voluntary codes of conduct. And they exist because the brands have consistently fought laws that would regulate their practices, and they volunteered instead to offer codes of conduct that they design and that have no bearing necessarily in reality at all. Uh, Don't take my word for it. Um, This is something from a 2015 documentary called The True Cost. Uh, you can watch it for free online, it's on YouTube, I think it was, it was on Netflix at one point, but the true cost, highly recommended, it's, uh, some of its data is slightly outdated now because it's from 2015, but overall, fascinating look into all these issues. And in that documentary, the filmmakers actually asked the director of the Institute of Labor and Rights about these voluntary codes of conduct on their websites, and she says this,
1: If you write to any of these companies, they'll send you their code of conduct and it's beautiful and it says, oh yes, we take responsibility for the conditions under which our product is made, you know, the product that you buy, all the factories where we produce, we require them to respect the minimum wage laws, you know, all of the laws of the country, to respect women, not to hire children, uh, no forced labor. Um, no excessive overtime hours, all that stuff. Um, but when we submitted a bill in Congress a few years ago, or worked with, worked with people to do that, we called it the, the Decent Working Conditions and Fair Competition Act, the companies responded in one voice, oh no, that would be an impediment to free trade, we can't, we can't have rules, we can't have, we can't have that. They want to keep it with voluntary codes of conduct. Now, you know, they've fought for and they've won laws to protect their stuff and their interests. But, you know, what about the workers? The workers are left with voluntary codes of conduct. And what we see in case after case after case is that those voluntary codes of conduct are not worth the paper that they're written on.
0: Unfortunately, uh, I didn't know that years ago, you know, and the first time I went poking around at Sears.com, I was like, uh, oh, man, it's right there on their website. It says they do everything, buy the books. Well, that sounds awesome. Um, so here's the bad news. When it comes to the big brands and the fast fashion, um, I've been at this for a while. I'm not an expert by any means, but you know I've poked around and learned maybe more than the average Joe, enough to do a lecture. And uh, when it comes to the big brands, the fast fashion, the things down that list, I'm not convinced personally, it's not just me, but I'm not convinced personally that there is an ethical way to shop. Now, Abby and I first embarked on, my wife Abby and I, uh, on this journey to learn and practice ethical shopping back in 2009. I read something in a book that really bothered me, and we decided to start making some changes. Since then, you know, we've learned a lot through trial and error, and sadly, a, a lot has changed, uh, some for the for, for some for the better, but a lot for the worse since 2009. In fact, I've given this, I looked it up, lecture like a half dozen times at this point. Every time um, I go through and I rewrite things and I update all the stats and research because I don't want to give you guys figures from 2015 or something like that. And I was bummed today as I went back over to make sure it was up to date and found that the, the stats and research somehow get worse every time I give this lecture. Um, one such year... I was trying to track down some information. I managed to get on the phone with a guy who oversaw, it was his job, to oversee relationships with the Chinese factories of one major shoe retailer, um, one of the biggest. And he was downright fatalistic about the whole thing. He told me that these big brands are simply never going to change. It would be a complete financial disaster to do so. It would be regression of their business model and entirely untenable from a business perspective. He said what you can look for is that they might tidy up some aspects of their practice, especially when those aspects kind of boil over into the public eye. But the long and short of it is you can't put it back in the box. Now all of the data indicates that the world, the world, simply can't handle giant corporations that crank out millions upon millions of sneakers and jackets or jeans or whatever it might be without taking a massive toll on the planet and the people in it in the process. So the giant manufacturers and brand names, the stores in the mall, the department stores, those kinds of cheap brands, I doubt very much that any of them are ethical in the sense that from farm to mill to factory to store, they reject the exploitation of human beings and the planet and all that stuff. So what do we do? If your closet starts to sound or feel like 30 pieces of silver, as it did uh, for me at one point, this is not as simple as Googling a brand and ruling out a couple of main offenders. Oh, Walmart bad or Sears apparently bad. Sears is really getting it this evening. But... (laughs) hang in there. Before uh, I end, I have a few thoughts on where we go from here. So here's the thing. I started asking these questions a long time ago. I've learned that it is possible to make ethical shopping decisions, but as disciples of Jesus, we're going to have to rethink the way that we shop. So before uh, my time's up here, I have three very simple ways forward as the holiday shopping season encroaches, and I you know, as your pastor and friend invite you to reconsider the way that you shop. One of them's been up here as a spoiler. This so it's not Levi's fault, it's mine. The first thing is to buy used, as you've seen behind me for the last five minutes. Buying things someone else has given away uh, does all kinds of amazing things in the process. It reduces waste, keeps stuff out of landfills, it cuts down on industrial environmental degradation, and, and get this, best part, it funnels no new money into companies that abuse human beings and the planet. So if you're counting, that's four good things. So, you know, it's as simple as you can frequent your local thrift store if you like that, or, you know, you can even go to like the Portlandy boutique ones that have the same basic stuff for like 10 times as much money. Something for everyone. Um, you know, when my phone eventually gets, because I end every one of our Sunday pre-production meetings by being like, that's it, go! Uh, eventually it breaks, and then I get a refurbished phone that somebody else uses. That's not why I mistreat it, because I'm just going to buy a new one. I'm just saying that eventually, it takes a few years, but I get a refurbished phone. Um, when I need new uh, boots, for example, I've had this, this pair of boots, not this particular one, but this kind of boot, um, I guess nine years now, uh, and I go to a website called poshmark.com, uh, type in this exact thing in my size and some other people's boots with buyer's remorse <laughs> that, uh, or that decided they don't like these boots anymore come up and I buy those and it keeps my feet dry for another couple of years. I've been doing that, like I said, since before my first kid was born. since nine nine years ago now, almost ten years ago now. Um, if you want to buy used, uh, poshmark.com is the site I recommend. You can buy just about anything. People use it. They frequent it um and you'll you can find like retailers that are trying to move new products from these big brands so you have to actually do the work it's pretty obvious that you know that you're actually buying from some guy in california or maine or something instead of you know um, target has extra listings or whatever uh and then you have to you know find the shoes that don't have holes in them so obviously there's a little more work involved but it's not that hard trust me you'll be fine um, abby does all of the clothes shopping for our three kids and she buys, you know, this is impossible to quantify perfectly, but uh, about 90% or more of everything that our kids wear used from a website called Kidizen. Um, she uses Kidizen for almost all of their shopping, uh, another highly recommended resource, especially if you have kids, obviously, if you have, if you have kids. And she, you know, she frequents consignment shops, um, and then when the kids outgrow them, and if there's not someone in our community or church that we can offer hand-me-downs to... Um, she relists the clothes. She sells them again on Kitizen, or sells them back to the consignment shop and re- thus hopefully reducing that cycle of waste even more. Now, obviously, that's a much slower process. Uh, so I asked her today, that I, making sure I got all my facts right, and she said, I just had to learn to shop one or two seasons ahead. Um, so, you know, it's like summertime and she knows they're going to need new jackets. She starts looking on kiddos and then until it's like, oh, there's one, there's one. Does the same thing for herself. And, and she does it. Our kids always have clothes. So far, so good. Um, it's not that hard. It's much slower, but I'm going to argue in a minute that that's actually a lot better for us. Uh, So that's step one, buy used stuff. Secondly, there actually are brands working to go about things differently, but it's decidedly a smaller pool to draw from, and it's not as fast. So one company that I often mention in these talks, they're not paying me anything, and I really don't care about them that much, but there's a company called Everlane. Um, Their whole shtick is like trying to reform the fashion industry uh, through Better practices, radical transparency. So if you want a t-shirt, go on their website, and you can click on the t-shirt and learn about the exact factory in which that shirt was made, and see who made it. There's names of the people who worked in, photos of them, learn about the materials and where they came from, and the cost uh, that the company uh, paid for these materials before the markup, just a tremendous amount of transparency, and you know, it's like, you know, I guess, in style or whatever. Now, of course, that means you won't be able to, like, waltz into the mall tomorrow and shop at an Everlane shop um, or go downtown and just browse, browse stuff to try. And it's a slower process of ordering and then occasionally being like, oh, that's not the right size. You've got to send it back and wait for it to come. Consumer goods, not instantly accessible. Can you imagine such a thing? And then finally, and this is To my personal estimation, the most fundamental and foundational of all these pragmatic points, just buy less stuff. It turns out you really don't need to buy clothes that often, and really we don't need as much stuff, period, as we are led to believe. Now, one of the strange byproducts of this whole journey, um, at least for my family, is the kind of accidental minimalism that we stumbled into. The more Abby and I learned, the less tenable it became to like shop at a lot of the kinds of places that we once shopped, and so we inadvertently shopped less at first just because we didn't know what the heck to do. I was like, well, I guess we can't get anything from there anymore, at least not until we decide what we think about that. Uh, I guess we're not getting anything, you know? Uh, now, I was never, uh, you, you might not believe this, but I was never Mr. Fashion or anything, but I had all kinds of clothes at one point. I, like, I thought back on it today, and I was just like, what was I doing with all these guys? I had just, like, tons of, like, old Nirvana shirts and crap, half-dozen pairs of, like, tattered blue jeans and whatever. And at one point, I got, I got rid of all that stuff, I donated all of it, and I've been wearing the one outfit for more than a decade now. And I feel a lot better, actually. Now, my wife, Abby, um, is cooler than me. She's more interested in uh, clothes than I am, and she looks nicer than I do. But we share the same conviction, so she, you know, her personal thing is that she only shops to replace damaged or worn-out clothes, um, almost entirely used. And the only time she shops for clothes just for the heck of it is if someone gives her a gift card for Christmas or her birthday or something like that. In fact, she and I adopted a policy that the only time we buy things for ourselves, meaning like unnecessary, like, you know, something to enjoy for yourself is if somebody gives you a present. <laughs> somebody gives you like a gift card or, you know, at Christmas, your grandparents sends you a check or something, I don't know if it was sometimes my... Mimi remembers I exist, and she just sends me a random check in the mail, and I'm like, oh, wow, well, she remembered us this year. And then I can go get that book I wanted or record I wanted or something like that. We don't ever just go buy something because we just want it. Now, um, I'm not saying you guys need to go home and adopt it. Those are our personal things. I'm not saying that you need to go like the uniform model or anything. And I'm, I am saying this. If we, all of us, want to grow in our discipleship to Jesus and follow him with integrity— There's going to be have have to be changes to the way we shop. All of us. At the end of the day, what's all the deliberation over? It's just stuff. It's just stuff. And here's the twist. I think personally, and I'm learning this more and more all the time, that freeing yourself from the stranglehold of stuff is something every disciple of Jesus has to do, regardless of where their stuff came from. Take out labor ethics entirely, and it's still something that we have to figure out. If we feel as though we need a certain brand of, of shoes or a certain type of phone so badly that the thought of like not being able to buy that one to avoid supporting slavery, if that's like, oh, that scares us and puts us off, that's probably a telling realization. And I can say from experience, believe me, when I first started to go like, oh, my God, does this mean I can't have, you know, you fill in the blank? And I didn't like the way that made me feel. Ooh, why do I recoil at the idea of not having this thing? If the idea that certain changes... God might invite you to make could mean that you just can't go down, you know, the the target aisle and buy whatever you want, is just too great an ask. What does that mean? Ask yourself. If we might suspect the thing that it is that we want to buy or own might indeed be a, a product of injustice, and we just can't imagine giving it up, maybe that speaks to an issue deeper than where we shop. Now, I've been thinking this week about another story in Matthew, just as jarring as Judas and 30 pieces of slavery in a different way. It's from Matthew 19. You guys know the story. Rich guy comes up to Jesus. He wants in on the whole kingdom of God thing. You know, uh, teacher, how do I get eternal life? Jesus weirdly says, keep the commandments, which is the wrong answer theologically. And the guy says, well, which ones? And he, and he rattles off a handful of the relational Ten Commandments. Jesus does. Six, seven, eight, nine, and five, if you're counting. And the guy says, oh, I'm good. I've done those. So that's not it. What am I missing? Give me another uh, clue. How do I get the eternal life thing? How am I in on the messianic kingdom, all that? And then Jesus hits him. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then, that's not all, then come follow me indefinitely. And the guy just can't hack it. He just go, It says he goes away sad. And then Jesus gets even more intense. He turns around to his friends. They've seen this whole exchange because he's walking around with them, and he says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to understand or inherit the kingdom of God. Um, One commentator I read translated as Jesus saying, this is a quote, Amen, I tell you, it is practically impossible for a well-off person to get into the kingdom of God. So this shopping season, consider this, throughout all four Gospels, when you hear stories about Jesus approaching someone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and calling them directly, follow me. Gospels are filled with these stories. In every case, uh, they do it. They drop their nets. They abandon their boats. They leave behind the careers and lifestyles and worldviews, except the one, and it's the one that has to do with money and stuff. And notice the text doesn't even say that the dude was using his money to do heinous things, that he was involved in injustice somehow. In fact, some scholars assume, given the great value for poorer relief, amongst first-century Jews, especially well-off Jews, he could have very well been a charitable person. Jesus doesn't criticize the way he spends his money. The text doesn't say he was stingy or debauched or scandalous. All we know is that he has it, and he doesn't want to give all of it away. We, as consumers, enjoy a lifestyle of fast fashion and food and gadgetry with impunity Uh, Because nearly all of us, by global standards anyway, are very wealthy than the majority of the world who lives on something like $1 to $2 a day. So we don't like this text. We don't like this story. What often happens with this story is that uh, there's a panicked scramble to point out, well, yeah, but Jesus didn't command all his disciples to sell everything and give to the poor, which is true. He could have done that, and he did not. But let me read you a couple of scholars on this passage. This is the first one. Robert Gundry said that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command, which is a bummer. This is one from Dale Bruner. He says, we believe that Jesus intends every disciple in every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in this story at the point of our possessions and are asked to say, is it I, Lord? Readers should be careful to avoid the particularist, only the rich man interpretation of our text. And every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus' word with integrity. Now here's why I've gone in this direction to end this whole thing this evening. You can become a more responsible shopper with lots of research and hard work I know a lot of people that have, that won't necessarily transform you into the kind of person truly set free from the tyranny of materialism or greed or vanity. In fact, uh, before I left this evening, I was kind of talking with uh, my wife over dinner about some of the stuff I was going to say, and I, I brought up that point, and she said, oh, well, sure, you can buy... Completely, shop completely ethically. It can be done. You can buy all your stuff used and still be absolutely addicted to things. If Jesus is asking you to change the way you shop, and if he told you, sell everything you have and give to the poor, what would you feel? What would you say? I'm asking myself this question all the time. I know that's an uncomfortable question to ask, but remember, Jesus doesn't provoke for the sake of making us sit in our discomfort, like, you know, I don't like how I feel, because almost all of us understand that true and good and beautiful things are in many ways very costly. Things like friendship, a vocation, a dream, a marriage, family, parenting, community. None of those things are easy or simple or straightforward. They all cost a lot. In everything, Jesus is teaching us that if we follow him, we can be empowered to let go of anything and everything that stands between us and him and when that happens, we will be more free. He's not doing this to make us less happy. Jesus isn't, isn't calling us to some kind of miserable self-denial for the sake of proving our fidelity through the agony of hardship. Like, you've got to climb this mountain in the snow just to prove that you love. He's teaching us self-denial as the door through which we access what Jesus called life. Life to the fullest, he actually said. Or in some in, uh, translations, the life that is truly life. He's saying, this is how you become a contented, peaceful, unanxious, joyful human being in tune with the spirit of God. And so the conversation transitions from the nuances of ethical shopping to freedom. The very first time I talked about something like this, all I did was the stuff I talked to you guys about for like the first 20 minutes. So I guess my mind was reeling from learning all these things and trying to help other people join me. Uh, in my, you know, kind of trial and error fumbling pursuit to uh, not support injustice and, and evil in the world by the way that I shop. Because I think I and a lot of us just say, oh, I just had no idea. I mean, I've heard some things, but I had no idea the depth of it. And I, I want to make some changes. I just don't know how. And, and so that's where I went in that direction and realized over time that it's about more than just ethical shopping decisions. It's about shopping decisions, period. Ethical shopping in the kingdom of God is an entirely different approach to the way that we handle our money and our things in the first place. Stanley Hauerwas, in his commentary on Matthew, he notes that Jesus concludes his exchange with the rich man by pointing out that with God all things are possible. And he goes on to write this, Our temptation is to think that Jesus' reply is intended to let us off the hook. With God all things are possible. Being rich is a problem, we think, but God will take care of us, the rich, the only way God can. But such a response fails to let the full weight of Jesus' observation about wealth have the effect it should. Jesus' reply challenges not only our wealth, but our very concept of salvation. To be saved means that our lives are no longer our own. So, to end, this is my humble invitation with all of this. I know that a lot of stats, the fire hose of stats, and stuff about simplicity, and if you're anything like me, I, I felt when I first started to turn over this rock Um, entirely ill-equipped and inadequate to address my own uh, relationship with money and things. Even though I had very little money and very little things, I still felt their hold on my life. And I was immediately discouraged by other people. It's impossible, they would say. Ah, why even bother? You can't buy anything. You'd have to leave the world. The the fatalism was incredible. So my encouragement is this. Start somewhere. A few years ago, this is a story about a guy who's not here. You know, you know this person, Allah. My friend Peter, uh, he was learning and, and, and feeling convicted about this stuff as well. And uh, as it happens, the rainy season had begun, which uh, we receive as a blessing from the Lord, Allah. Amen. Yeah, amen. Um, and so he goes out to buy a raincoat, as the story goes. It's a practical purchase. This is, I mean, you would not look at him, but he doesn't care that much about fashion. <laughs> so he goes out to buy a raincoat. Practical purchase. He pokes around online. He said he could find no clear indication that the raincoat in question was terrible. You know. So he just, he's like, whatever. I can't find all the information on I'm just going to go buy the raincoat. And he went out and bought the raincoat, and it got to bothering him. And he was telling me this. He was just like, oh, I don't know. I didn't really dig that deep. And I feel like I just gave my precision to buy this thing. And I was, you know, I was kind of letting him off the hook. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, you're starting to try something. That's something. Then a few days later, he was talking to me. And he was like, I just took it back. I went and took the raincoat back. Um, and then i went and actually spent some time online and i found this ethical sustainably manufactured raincoat online and he ordered that one instead even though that it was decidedly less convenient took longer he might have had to like exchange sizes all that stuff now hearing that story the temptation of those not engaging any steps to change is to find the contradiction you know well, what about some other thing that Peter bought and that he owns? Because if we can prove that he's a hypocrite, maybe we can alleviate any distant you know, sense that we too should be changing in some sense. And I've been thinking about this and attempting to practice it for years now. And still, there are times uh, when friends of mine who are also practicing this will gent- graciously point out a gap in my practice that I hadn't e- even thought about. I mean, we buy so much stuff and sometimes people are like, where'd the bag come from? I'm like, I don't know never bought a bag before, so I didn't even think about it. I needed a bag for this trip. You know, it's that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't then, when someone catches me in a gap in my practice, just throw it all out as an impossibility. You're right. I didn't even think about this bag. What's the point? And, you know, I keep going, and I keep trying, and I keep fighting, and I try to learn more and um, resolve those gaps in my practice. So maybe it just starts with, like, this nagging feeling about a rain jacket you know, and a small gesture and a small change somewhere, just, just start somewhere. I've done talks like these long enough to realize that with enough factoids and data, we can come into a better understanding of the way we shop, but at the end of the day, Jesus wants to set us free from materialism, which is a much bigger deal and much more complicated for most of us, and it makes solving the other problem a whole heck of a lot easier. When you are free from the tyranny of stuff, I'm not saying that I've arrived or anything, but when you begin to sense some freedom from the tyranny of stuff, the idea that you can't buy as much of it doesn't really bother you all that much. So my prayer um, for myself, for you guys, and for our church is that we would learn to become a people um, practicing simplicity and practicing justice in the way that we shop. So may, may it be so, and may Jesus set us free indeed. Amen. Let me pray real quick. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity City financially at vancitychurch/give.